did. Our second scripture lesson is the story of Pentecost, which is found in the book of Acts in the second chapter. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like a rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show portents in the heaven above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoky mist, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the Lord's great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So as I said a moment ago, I am a campus minister which means that my congregation is college students and they follow the academic calendar. And so one of the things that I miss the most from my years as a local church pastor before I came into this role is getting to preach and worship and celebrate some of those holidays that happen to fall when school is not in session. I can't remember the last time I got to preach a Pentecost sermon because most years when Pentecost arrives, my students have all gone from campus, traveling to the four corners of the world for whatever awaits them in the summer. 
So I'm really excited to be back with you today, and I'm excited that it is on Pentecost. So excited, in fact, that we are going to look through this story twice this morning. We're going to start by looking at it in two different ways. Our first pass through Pentecost is pretty straightforward, but that doesn't mean it is boring. Apart from the crucifixion and the resurrection, Pentecost is perhaps the most important event recorded in the New Testament. It's remembered as the birth of the church. Sometimes we talk about Pentecost as the birthday of the church. Why? It's not because it's the day when the apostles all had a meeting together and said, well, we're going to be the church. We're going to need a worship committee and a handbell choir and a, some folding chairs. It's the birth of the church because everyone who had been a witness to Jesus' resurrection was wondering what to do with that information now that Jesus himself had ascended into heaven. And here, in a fiery show of Holy Spirit power, was indisputable proof that God's intervention in the world would not end with Jesus. Now, the good news was going to spread, and it was going to spread to people who had never encountered Jesus. Instead, they would encounter the Holy Spirit, and they would encounter Jesus' followers. That's what the church is. A group of Jesus' followers who, with the power of the Holy Spirit, can announce and enact the good news. The miracle at Pentecost, of course, and the big thing we remember from that story is a miracle of translation. When the Spirit moves among the crowd and the tongues of fire descend and people are able to speak beyond their own natural capabilities and everyone gets to hear about God in a way that they can understand. This was a great and surprising development. At the time, it was a sign that God's desire was not just for some set of people, but that God's desire was for all people. And that God meets us where we are. It means that even though this is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, you don't need to conform to the traditions of Judaism in order to have a place with God. It also means, thankfully, that you don't have to speak Greek or Hebrew, or Aramaic, or English, in order to have a place with God. You don't have to sing or pray or worship in any certain kind of style or manner. Instead, the Holy Spirit has that power of translation and the ability to speak to you in a way that you can understand. What a miracle. So, then... Our first reading of Pentecost tells us these very important truths. That the gospel is for all people. That the gospel can be translated without loss into different languages and cultures. And that the church was born to be that kind of witness in the world. It is marvelous and miraculous and hopeful news for those who have not yet heard or believed the good news of Jesus Christ. And for us in the church, for those who do believe, 
Pentecost points to our calling, our mission, our task. That's as it should be. It is good to come to church and be given a mission to spread the story of God's love near and far. It's good to be inspired and challenged and to see how God calls you to join in with what the Holy Spirit is already doing out in the world. And so even as we embrace that and leave it intact, I know that when I come to church, I'm also looking for a miracle in my life. And it's a little hard to know what to make of a miracle that's really about people hearing about Jesus for the very first time. I'm someone who's been a Christian my entire life. I was born into it. I know the good news. Some days I might even say that I understand it. And so I do feel like a little bit on the outside of the story of Pentecost. Like when you see a really good rate advertised for a subscription service or a cell phone plan, and then later on you find out that the rate is only for, for new subscribers only. And if you're already a customer, there's no offer for you. Well, I've been a Christian for a long time, but I know I'm not a finished product. And I don't want to be left out while the Holy Spirit seeks out other, newer people. And so this is our second pass through the story. Is there any miracle to be had at Pentecost for me? Or for you, who have believed and who have endured some really hard years and still are gathering as the church to hear a word? What is Pentecost to the one who already believes? Or I might even say, what happens when the good news starts to feel like old news? The students I work with at Duke are asking a similar question. For the most part, the ones who bother to come to campus ministry are the ones who arrived on campus as Christians. They've been richly formed as teenagers in places like this, and so they arrive on campus and their faith is an important part of their identity, important enough that they're willing to continue working at it even though they don't live with their parents anymore and they have a bit more freedom. And yet they are experiencing some profound dissonance in their new environment. At college, they're having their horizons busted wide open. They're encountering a big world, people who didn't grow up in the same way or the same place that they did. They are there in order to grow and learn and, yeah, change. And so the big scary question arises I'm about to change a lot over these next four years. So will my identity as a Christian be something that I grow into in college or something that I grow out of? Indeed, for a lot of people, growing up means, yeah, I went to Sunday school when I was a kid, but now I'm an adult, 
I don't really mess with that stuff anymore. But for others, and this is what I'm striving for every day, others will look at the faith that was planted in them as a child or a teen and say, I am growing and changing, and I need to make sure to tend this precious gift of faith so that it grows too. And so the question I like to put to students is, how are you going to pivot? They tease me for using the word pivot too much. How are you going to pivot from the faith of your childhood to an adult faith that you can embrace for yourself? And in a way, what we're describing there is a kind of translation. We've got this precious opportunity to tell them, hey, God's love is for you exactly as you've been created. God's spirit is with you wherever you go. And God's grace can transform you, sometimes without you even knowing that it's happening. There's nothing revolutionary about that. It's, it's Jesus loves me, this I know, but translated into grown-up. It's news, something really new, for people who have heard it all before. And so, what about you? I'm going to risk an ignorant question here because truly I don't know any of you individually. I'm new here, coming from the outside. I don't know the congregation, so I make no assumptions in asking this. But the question that rises for me, how long has it been since you felt something in this space since you felt something that might be described as the living God, power, fire, spirit. In my experience, the United Methodist Church has done a really good job over the last 50 years of forming disciples who are very committed, but forgivably maybe a little bit stagnant. I include myself in that for sure. I have known and loved a lot of people who, you know, we come together for church maybe primarily because we're, we're sticking with what we learned as a child. It's a kind of nostalgia. We're sticking to an identity that's important to our family or our community. It's, it's, it's cultural. Or we're sticking with, with people that we care about and people who care about us. It's, it's social and communal. These are, you got to have that in church. These are beautiful and good and valuable things, but I don't think there is quite the fire in them. I don't know if the spirit is quite there. Now, to be sure, not every day can be like Pentecost. But shouldn't a few days be like that? Don't we need a fresh word, a new translation here in the church? Not to tell us again what we already know, but maybe to help us feel what we perhaps have not felt in a very, very long time. I'm trying to tread really lightly here because, again, I don't know where anybody's journey has taken you. And I really want to be clear that there's no shame in feeling a bit disconnected or stagnant, every faithful person experiences this. Consider even the example of John Wesley, 
the founder of the Methodist movement in the 1700s. You know, it was 285 years ago, just this week, that he wrote in his journal, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society meeting on Aldersgate Street where someone was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. This might be a familiar story to you. We remember it in Methodism as Aldersgate Day, May 24th. We often describe it as John Wesley's conversion experience, and we have held on to that language of a heart that is strangely warmed. I had heard this story many times before I realized that this was essentially a midlife episode for him. That at the time when that happened, he was already just about as churchy as you could be. It happened in May of 1738. At that time, Wesley is 35 years old. He'd been ordained as a priest since he was 22 born into a family of priests. Nobody had been in church more than John Wesley. By the 1730s, he's already a prominent spiritual leader in London, although he has never settled into kind of a normal parish position, and his missionary adventure to Georgia had really been a disaster a few years prior. But still, Wesley had accomplished so much and even believed so strongly, yet that was not the same thing as feeling in the depths of his heart that God's love was for him, even him. And so even after a lifetime in the church, even after figuring out how to say a lot of things about God, and even with all his famous disciplines of prayer and piety, John Wesley's heart was still running a little bit cold. Warming it up was something only God could do. It took an unexpected, out-of-control invasion of the Holy Spirit. And it happened for John Wesley in the middle of his life, on an evening when he was grumpy and went to church unwillingly. And it was three days after Pentecost. There's really no way to make this kind of thing happen. We can't force the Holy Spirit to move. But we can position ourselves to be receptive. And that starts in prayer. God, I want to be part of the Pentecost miracle. I want to tell others how much you love them. But maybe I first need to rediscover that you love me. My prayer for you is that the old news about Jesus Christ will become good news again. That you can experience it fresh and anew and that it will be good. I'm praying for a Pentecost for those who have already believed.
So we started today by looking at the Pentecost story twice. First, as a miracle for those who had not yet heard the gospel, and then as a promise that might even be for those who have heard the gospel many times. Well, the best news of all may be that the second miracle can unlock the possibility of the first miracle. A Pentecost within the church can help make possible a Pentecost beyond the church. Because no church that is coasting on a nostalgic or cultural memory of faith and experience long ago can really help translate the faith anew. But when you tend to the flame in here, when you tend to the flame in here, you just might see two miracles for the price of one. You might rediscover your own belovedness and glimpse how that same love of God is reaching out to people entirely different and distant and dissimilar from you. The Duke students and the NC State students, the Spanish speakers and the English speakers, the ones worshiping online and the ones worshiping in person, the new customers and the old blood. God somehow loves us all with the same fire. What a miracle. And what a God. Amen.